This episode of Into the Wild is sponsored by Leica Sport Optics. It's well known and proven that connecting with wildlife and nature can improve your overall well-being. So why would you not want to turn it up a notch by getting to see things even closer and clearer with a set of binoculars? It's what I have done and I've not looked back. I can't recommend enough checking out the range of optics that Leica have to offer. A great range of kit with superb optics and they even have payment plans if you don't have the cash up front. I wouldn't shout about a company on the show that I haven't used or been impressed by, and it's important to me that companies we are partnered with have the same values as Into the Wild, which is why I'm proud to give them five thumbs up. If you want to check out more of Leica's range, then visit their website that can be found in the write-up of this episode. And now, on with the show. Hello everyone and welcome to Into the Wild, your weekly podcast about wildlife, nature and conservation. I'm your host, Ryan Dalton. Thanks for clicking play on the pod. Hello everyone, welcome to another Into the Wild. <laughs> I don't know why I laughed, what is wrong with me? I'm, I'm a bit hyper, I've just had three coffees in the space of an hour. I had to go and drop a dog back. And on the way back I stopped in a charity shop and bought some country and western albums. <laughs> so I've just been drinking coffee listening to John Denver and um, my, my hand is shaking. I mean you can't see it because it's a podcast but I'm shaking. Right, deep breath. <laughs> Spring is officially here, isn't it? I'm, I'm so happy about it. Do you know why? I saw my first butterfly today. I'm absolutely buzzing. Saw my first butterfly. Any guesses what it was? Give you a couple of seconds. Have a think. Get a butterfly in your head. What do you reckon it was? It was... It was a brimstone. It was a brimstone. It always is. Every year it's a brimstone. No offence to brimstones. I love them. They're yellow. They're, they're beautiful. You can always spot them. I love them, but it is always a brimstone around North London. That's the first thing you always see. Congratulations to those that got it right. Well done. And to those that didn't, try harder next year. (laughs) Let's get some positivity in the house, shall we? With some 60-second nature news, I've got some four lovely nature-y, conservation-y stories that I'm going to share with you for 60-second nature news. Let's take a deep breath. (sighs) Am I talking faster than usual? These coffees have had an effect on me. Jesus, sound more like I've done a bit of Mandy. Right, let's go. The first mountain bongos have been released into a sanctuary beneath Mount Kenya as part of a huge attempt to save the extremely rare forest antelopes from the inevitable extinction in the wild. Two young males have joined two other bongos released the day before into a woodland in the foothills of Africa's second highest peak, where the iconic antelopes have not been seen for nearly 30 years. With only 100 individuals left in the wild, this kind of work is critical to save the species of the mountain bongo. The hill's horseshoe bat, a bat that is critically endangered and hasn't been spotted for 40 years, has been found in Rwanda. Conservationists were worried that the bat had already gone extinct, but it's been found clinging on to the dense Nwangi forest. Good news for bird lovers, the Hawaiian crow has bounced back conservation efforts brought numbers from just 20 in the 1990s to 110 in captivity today and in 2016 efforts have been focused on reintroduction of captive individuals back into the wild. And finally, after losing 99% of its historical range in Southeast Asia, the Siamese crocodile is listed as critically endangered. However, conservation efforts in Cambodia have been focused on securing protected habitat for the species and releasing individuals back into the wild. From 2012 to 2020, over 100 individuals were released and five sites in the Cardamom Mountains have been secured as crocodile sanctuaries and are regularly patrolled. And that's the end of 60 Second Nature News. 
Oh, there we go. Um, do you know what? I'm, I'm so happy that spring is here and it's getting warmer, but it means it's getting hotter under this dressing gown where I record my intros. <laughs> I'm sweating so much. Right, okay. On to today's show. What are we talking to... What are we talking about today? <laughs> today, we are talking about white storks. The, the, the storks that are white. We're talking about them. Uh, <laughs> never having done... I, I would have been better off having 12 pints before doing this rather than three coffees. Today's show, we are talking with Lucy Groves from the White Stork Project, all about these wonderful animals. We talk about the white storks as a species, where they've been, what they've been doing, um, their historical range. We're talking about once they were in the UK and now they're not, and maybe they're coming back and they are back here. And will they be here forevermore? It is basically up to them, but it's all about restoring that habitat. Which led us on to talk about the great work uh, people like Lucy do at the White Stork Project. and. Even more excitingly, actually this week, uh, I believe it was Monday at 10 a.m., the White Stork Project released or launched their first ever live stream camera nest at Nep Safaris. It's really exciting. It's the first time it's been done. Uh, you've got some wonderful footage of two white storks on the nest, so you can see it all in action. Uh, you can go over to, on their social media channels and check that out. The links are in the write-up of this episode. But this is the kind of work that Lucy and I were talking about on this episode, about not just bringing the storks back, but what the storks can do for conservation in this country. Such a, a species that creates that conversation, gets people talking, gets people excited about wildlife. And it was great to hear about all the all the work that has been going on. So let's move on to the show. Ladies and gentlemen, nature nerds around the world, this is White Storks with Lucy Groves from the White Stork Project. Lucy, thank you so much for joining me on Into the Wild. It's lovely to have you here. Um, I don't know, it looks sunny where you are. Has it been a sunny day? It has been on and off, stormy, windy, sunny, <laughs> rainy, stormy, windy, sunny, all day. So yeah, It's, it's a, been Britain. Yeah, yeah, basically, yeah, Britain in February. <laughs> so yeah, it's nice out there at the moment though. So yeah, it's nice. Yeah. Let's let's take each hour as it comes. Exactly. It's been like that. Haven't you found like it's been like that with the storm? Even when that storm was here, it was like, although it was 70 miles an hour wind, if it stopped being windy for a bit, it was like beautiful blue skies and warm weather. I know, it was most bizarre. Like, I just, I, there was no rain. We had no rain. It was just no. wind. I was like, what was going on? <laughs> I know. I cancelled my day's work on Friday because obviously I work outdoors. So I was like, you know, it's not going to be safe. Woke up in the morning, looked outside. I was like, it looks fine. I know. Yeah, I know. We like literally battened down all the hatches and I planned to work outside. And I was like, right, I'm staying in. And I kept looking outside thinking, but it's sunny. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll say this, for wheelie bins, it was a nightmare. Yeah, wheelie bins, fences, anything like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, and with us, with like stalks, with, we've got fencing and nests and all that oh, kind of God. stuff. It was all a little bit hairy at times, but yeah. Well, we'll talk about more of that in a minute, actually. I'm going to be asking you questions yeah. about how the weekend has been for you. Um, let's start where we always start on Into the Wild, um, Lucy. Would you like to tell us who you are and what is it you do? Yes, yeah, so I'm Lucy Groves and I am the project officer for the White Stork Project and also the UK programme manager for Durrell Wildlife Conservation Trust. Um, I'm a conservation biologist and uh, sort of, yeah, just general naturalist, really. 
Nice. And so nature has always been a part of your life? Yeah, pretty much. Um, I wanted to work with animals for as long as I could remember. Um, wanted to be a vet nurse to start off with, as you do. You know, when you're at school, yeah. there are only certain <laughs> options when you want to work with, with nature and wildlife. It was like a zookeeper or a vet nurse. Um, yeah, so I kind of went guys. down the road of both. Um, so, yeah, I was a zookeeper for a short time and specialised at a zoo that worked with British wildlife. And that's where I really got into to UK nature so yeah wow that's nice because you don't usually hear of that like I did zoo work as well and I worked with exotics yeah. but it I actually find I would have preferred it working with more native it, even native or once were native species yeah. Yeah. for the UK I find it quite exciting when you start working with those animals yeah it was awesome I mean when I was at uni studying to be a zookeeper I wanted to work with primates small primates in particular so it was all mm. the all about the exotics um and then yeah I got work experience at a, a small zoo that specialized in British wildlife and just completely fell in love with it and ended up staying on as as a keeper as a summer keeper and then a permanent keeper and then wanted to get into active conservation so um I quit without a job to go to just <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I just decided that was it. That was so wonderfully to, delivered. Yeah, exactly. Just needed to change. I quit. And, and quit. So, um, yeah, I think, yeah, it was a little bit of a risk, but it paid off in, in, the, in the long run. So That's great. That's so nice to hear. So what's, um, I mean, obviously white storks, yeah. that goes without saying, and that'll be obvious why in a minute, but... Did you have a favourite native species that you worked with at the zoo? So I've got a real soft spot for, for little owls. Um, I hand-reared a little owl and I actually have one as a pet from when I was at the zoo. So she, she lives here at home with me. So, oh my so yeah, that was God. a bit, bit scary during the storm. She she came into the house, which she often does. So she was in here whilst like Avery was shaking and stuff outside. But yeah, so I have, I have a little owl called Tyrion who we thought was a boy it's really difficult to tell with owls when they're young um yeah. <laughs> and yeah I left when I left the zoo I had to to leave Tyrion behind um and then they she didn't want to breed um she didn't like she didn't like people she doesn't like other owls so um they offered <laughs> her to me so she came home um which is really cool um but really and truly I think any small mammals basically harvest mice mm-hmm. in particular I've got a soft spot yeah. for um but yeah that's lovely I can't believe you got a little owl. Yeah. She's There's not many people that can say they've well. got a little owl. <laughs> That's amazing. So with the natural world always played a part in your life, what would you say your favourite part of the natural world is? Oh, that's a really tricky question. But for me, I just, I love woodlands, just anything to do with woodlands. Mm. I just love, I'm really lucky. I'm here in Sussex and I've grown up like sandwiched between the South Downs and the coast, but we live in a really wooded area. So, um, and loads of lovely ancient woodlands. We've got some really lovely protected ancient woodlands, which are are left to be quite natural. So there's loads of dead wood and it's just amazing. And if I need time to think, that's where I go, basically. It's lovely going for a walk in those kind of, especially in the next like few weeks yeah. in England. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it will I be absolutely, absolutely beautiful. And I just, I love it. Even any time of the year. I mean, you've got something to look at every every time of the year. And the colours and the smells and the changes. And, you know, you've got all the fungi in autumn and in spring, you've got all of the 
bulbs and the bluebells and everything coming up and it is just really really pretty um and one of my favorite things are this time of the year the flocks of like mixed groups of, of tits that you get flying through which yeah. are just like it's just like a constant noise of them moving through the woodland which i really love i absolutely love a woodland walk and i think my favorite thing i think i've said this on the show before or on instagram or something but i love log lifting yeah, yeah it's like the best thing i always feel a bit bad doing it yeah i'm like sorry guys but i'm too inquisitive and it's like it goes up in stages like if you find a massive cl- i don't know if this is the correct word to use for woodlass but a cluster yeah like just a huge but it's like oh I look at them all you see beetles you see some centipedes you might see some small millipedes and, and things like that and then what you're hoping for is obviously like amphibians or something yeah. if you get like a toad or frogs yeah. or like smooth newts or something you're like get in I know. yeah i love a toad <laughs> so, i know yeah. i know and you I, I rarely find them around like i know where i can find frogs and newts on Hampstead heath near me i yeah. know where the hot spots yeah. are but I rarely see, I mean, I know they're there, but I just don't find them. We used to see them in the fields a lot, but now lockdown with increased footfall, mm. they're just not there as much. I think they've like, probably probably gone further into the woodlands, yeah, but yeah. I love a toad. I think toads used to be my highlight. Yeah, they're so cool. <laughs> I just, I love their eyes. They're really lovely coppery yeah. amber eyes. I just think they're so cool. I do some reptile surveys and it's always a highlight when you lift up a tin. It's like, oh, I've got a toad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, always. Or like people always find them when they do up their gardens. I yeah. think. They don't realise what they have in their garden until they're like, oh, we lifted the patio. The amount of toads we found. (laughs) All the toads are thinking, what the hell? (laughs) What's going on? Do you need decking? The slabs were fine. (laughs) Anyway, on from toads. I wish we could talk about toads all day. (laughs) But we're going to be talking about not just the white storks, but the white stork projects, as you said, that you um, work for. So let's talk about white storks a little bit, because some people might be listening and going, okay, Grand, I can probably conjure up what kind of animal this is. (laughs) As the name suggests, it's a white stork. Um, But am I right in saying that these once were a native animal to the UK? Yeah, yeah, they were. So, I mean, our last actual written record of them breeding in the UK is from 1416, so quite some time ago. I mean, that was a nest on St Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh, so really north of the range, which is probably why it was written down, because it would have been quite unusual. But that's kind Mm. of the last breeding record we've got of them here in the UK. So, yeah, uh, since then, I mean, they they would have been regular visitors um, and, and fairly regular breeders as well. And nobody really knows why we don't have them anymore. I mean, they've suffered quite severe declines in the past, in the second half of the 20th century, uh, across the rest of their range in Europe, um, and have been reintroduced into eight countries across Europe. And habitat loss is a big thing, sort of drainage of, of wetland meadows and intensive agriculture and pesticides and all those usual things. But here in the UK, they think that actually targeted persecution was quite a big thing as well. Really? Yeah, yeah. And they would have been used for food. They, you know, they, they liked to be around people. They would have been quite easy to, to shoot or to, to hunt. Um, so they appear on medieval banquet lists and, and things like that. So they, they would have oh, been right. quite regularly eaten. Um, <laughs> they're, so. they're not the smartest of birds when it comes to hanging around people. Like, guys, no, go further away. No, they're typical bird brains, really. <laughs> yeah. still, I mean, I love them, but they can be no comment. Stupid. No comment from Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> 
so uh, yeah, it's um, it's interesting with them because yeah, they do like to be around people, but obviously that brings its its own issues in yeah, as well. Of course. But the other thing is they've got really strong breeding ecology so they nest in the same spot each year pairs will use exactly Mm. the same nest each year juveniles will return to the areas that they've hatched so if you lose a breeding colony they just don't come back basically so you lose that area and they they just don't return so we've been getting 30 40 of these birds you know vagrants of coming to the uk every year visiting but because we'd lost their breeding grounds they just weren't staying to breed so yeah that's one of one of the things that we're, we're working on to to improve so like if they rely on that i guess habitual kind of returning of their nesting sites that's quite an easy way to lose a species. But does that kind of make it quite easy? Not easy, I guess that's the wrong word, but does that kind of make it more a structured way to try and bring them back? Because once they get a habit formed again, hopefully that's a habit formed for life for them. Yeah, so it's it's the main methodology behind the reintroductions that have been done elsewhere in Europe and what we're doing here in the UK. So you're setting up that breeding colony to help you know, mm. encourage not only them to stay, but also it encourages perhaps wandering birds to come and stay as well. So yeah, the, we're using methodology that was developed by the Swedish reintroduction. They've been running since the 80s and successfully reintroduced the storks. And it's kind of three separate phases that they used in, well, they used two originally and they've adapted it and we've adapted it since. So basically the first phase of the project is to set up a resident population. And they do this by using birds that can't fly. So we got our birds from Poland, from Warsaw Zoo. They're birds that were injured in the wild and rescued, rehabilitated, but their injuries were so severe that they can no longer fly. And basically Warsaw Zoo had this massive collection of birds that they couldn't do anything with. And it was getting to the point where they were going to have to start thinking about putting some of them to sleep because there were just too many of them. And we were looking for birds so it, it worked out really well. So we, we've got about 25 of them at each of our release sites. We've got three release sites down here in the southeast. And these are in large six acre enclosures with lots of lovely different types of habitat. It's predator proof, but it's open topped. There's no, no top to it. And they form that sort of resident population. So they behave like a magnet for any birds that might be passing over. Uh, and in just a couple of months of having them uh, at the Nepa State in, in West Sussex, we had two wild birds land in the pen. So it definitely really? works. That, that part definitely oh, it's works. It's so exciting, isn't it? And then they'll also breed and their juveniles will be able to fledge themselves from, from that enclosure. The second phase is to have a free-flying resident population. So these will form these sort of free-flying breeding populations around each of the sites. And we've concentrated that mainly around NEP and our other site in East Sussex. So we've got these birds and basically, again, they're rehabilitated birds, but they can fly and we hold them in an aviary for about two winters. Yeah. Basically, that just imprints them onto the area. So although they can fly, they can wander, they can go where they like. They generally tend to stay within the area or if they go, they tend to come back. And these are the ones that we've seen breeding at NEP in the last year or so. And then because they did that in Sweden, they were finding that actually no birds were migrating at all. And obviously having birds staying in Sweden all winter long causes some issues Um, and they were having to supplementary feed and obviously with weather conditions and stuff it it wasn't great so they started reintroducing or or releasing first year captive bred birds so these are birds that have just fledged from captive nests and they facilitate a migratory population so they've got no bond really with the site other than they've been hatched in the area right okay Um, and they will migrate 
and then return a couple of years later when they're ready to breed. So that's what we do as well. So we use birds from Cotswold Wildlife Park, who are one of our partners, and uh, they come to, to net for a few weeks and then we release them and they generally fly off a few months later uh, and head south for the winter. I'm imagining like, you know, you're like used to seeing films, like an old war film, like a map. <laughs> and there'll be a guy like pushing tanks. <laughs> yeah, pushing in the white <laughs> That's what it storks. sounds like. <laughs> People just push it like, we need some white stalks over yeah. here. Let's put these ones over here. Yeah. Um, but I guess in a way that is kind of what it is. Pretty right? much. Yeah, pretty much. I basically do that. I've got a big map with locations of stalk sightings <laughs> on. So it's all computerised. But I, I should have one on the wall, I think. With Oh, you should. Pins. 100 percent. yeah get the pin with a string you'll look like an episode of csi it'll be brilliant (laughs) um it's amazing and they these are big birds as well aren't they yeah they are so they stand at about a meter tall and have a nearly two meter wingspan so they're, they're pretty big I mean, that must be pretty epic when you're seeing these birds fly overhead yeah. as well, because you, you see, I mean, birds are, it's an interesting way with birds because you quite often see them at a distance. You don't quite see them, even even if you see like a heron gull suddenly come down closer, like that is a lot bigger than yeah, I thought yeah. they were going to be. So a two metre wingspan, I mean, I'm two metres tall. So I'm imagining that now, yeah, yeah. me laying down. But that's what's it like when you see these birds, the white storks, fly overhead? It's absolutely amazing. Um, they're um, just absolutely beautiful to see in flight. So you see them kind of walking through the grassland and stuff. Yeah, that's pretty cool. But if you see them in flight and if you see quite a few of them in flight together and they're just mm. soaring on the thermals, they're so majestic and graceful not quite so graceful when they're taking off and landing but <laughs> once they're up they're amazing they they're really really beautiful what 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 do they do when they take off are they just too leggy yeah basically <laughs> so taking off takes a little bit of effort because they've they've got big wingspan and yeah it takes a little bit to get off and then when they're coming in to land they basically put their legs down first like landing gear on a plane and you can just see their legs kind of dangling <laughs> as they're coming in to land um, and yeah they're quite susceptible to like big gusts of wind and stuff as well so they get quite easy but yeah that's amazing and and like naturally like i say naturally but like what is their prime habitat like if you're rebuilding this habitat and bringing that back what kind of landscape are we talking that the white storks prefer yeah, so they like open areas. I mean, they will nest in trees, but they don't go into woodlands and stuff, unlike their cousins, the black storks, who primarily yeah. nest within woodlands and things. They like really big open areas, meadows, floodplains, areas that are periodically flooded, and agricultural land is is a sort of big part of, of their habitat as well. They follow tractors when they're ploughing or cutting grass and things like that, <laughs> um, like very large gulls, basically. Yeah, um, yeah. 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 So, um, but yeah, they love floodplains and wet meadows. Um, so they're basically main food sources is insects. You think for such a big bird okay. that seems a bit weird, but yeah, earthworms and crickets and grasshoppers. They follow plates of locusts when they're migrating. So they eat a lot of insects, but they're quite opportunistic. They'll they'll make the most of whatever they find. So if they disturb a snake or a 
reptile or an amphibian or anything like that, then they'll they, if they can catch it, they'll catch it. But they mainly are going for, for insects. So yeah, that's why these sort of habitats are, are most important for them. And you talk about they're like, you know, they, they, they might follow like, or like eat go through plagues of kind of it's still so weird in 2022 saying a plague and then yeah, like locusts isn't it yeah. like it's, so, it's such a biblical thing yeah. to say but <laughs> um but it does still happen we do get very large yeah. um like kind of groups of these animals but th- that kind of suggests that they these animals are quite widespread they have quite a large home range because that's nothing that doesn't happen near to britain yeah. so like where can we find these animals where are these where are the white stalks uh, like clung on to yeah so i mean they're, they're breeding and so they've kind of got breeding and overwintering habitats that they mm. use. So um, sort of breeding grounds, you're looking across Europe. They're quite widespread across Europe. I mean, they're classified as least concerned because they're so widespread, but uh, they then spend a lot of time in Africa and Morocco uh, and places like that where they where they overwinter, which is where they're going to find their plagues of locusts and, and things like that. So um, <laughs> yeah, they are quite widespread um, and they take two very distinctive migratory routes as well. So the Western European population go across the Strait of Gibraltar and the Eastern population go across the Bosphorus and down that way. So Amazing. And I mean, to be fair, I would I would like to winter in Morocco. <laughs> yeah. As well, it does sound like a good idea. I do, I do pay respect, and regardless of what I say about birds on this podcast, I pay respect to migratory birds yeah. that choose <laughs> that choose hot places to overwinter. It makes sense. I think I recall seeing them in Morocco because at the time when I was in Morocco about five years ago, I didn't, I didn't know of white storks. I was, I, you know, I hadn't immersed myself into the wonderful world of birds at that point, so I didn't really know of them. But now, once I've learned about them in the last couple of years, I recall seeing nests everywhere pretty much on top of what any spire or chimney or rooftop yeah um is this the relationship they when you say that you they're quite often close to people is this why is this where they choose to nest yeah so predominantly they nest on buildings chimney stacks on pylons which isn't a very smart idea but it's one of their (laughs) favorite spots um so yeah and literally they'll nest on people's roofs and and across their range and in areas particularly like poland where they've got quite a large population they've really formed this very close bond with the white storks and the people oh you get the same pair nesting on the same roof in the same nest every year so people get very fond of their individual storks oh that's cool um they Bond, you know, form these really lovely relationships. And I had a, a Polish film crew come a couple of years ago to to net to see the storks because obviously the storks were from Poland originally. And the lady who came, she was amazing, and she was from a, a small Polish village. And she said, you know, if if you didn't have a stork nesting on your roof, everybody thought there was something wrong with your family because it wasn't a good sign <laughs> that you didn't have one nesting on your roof. So basically, oh no, you, know, you encouraged them to nest on your roof people put up cartwheels and platforms and encourage them to to nest and it's bad luck to remove a nest so you know they're a sign of good luck and prosperity uh, of wealth and of rebirth so yeah they really really intertwined in in the culture oh that's imagine being that family yeah the one family in the village the one family Like what would what would you have done? Like they, they might not even like you know they maybe they don't live in the town very often. Maybe they work outside. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They've got no relation. That would be my family. <laughs> that would be my luck. I'd be living in a beautiful town. Everyone's got all the stalks. Yeah. I move in, stalks bugger off. Yeah. That is exactly what would happen. 
<laughs> they'll be like, oh, he's not a big bird fan. That's why. Yeah, he doesn't like I, birds. I, I, <laughs> he doesn't like birds. <laughs> hey, sorry to interrupt the episode, Nature Nerds. It's Ryan, your host here. I just want to give you a quick shout out about something. Into the Wild always aims to be a free show, accessible for everyone. However, running it is not free. If you would like to support Into the Wild and say thanks, then you can do so by visiting ko-fi.com forward slash into the wild pod. The link is in the write-up of this episode. By doing this and buying us a coffee, you are helping the future of Into the Wild. Thanks very much and back onto the show. What do you think the relationship would be like back in... I mean, obviously, this is very hard to tell. Do you think we or the hope is to see these animals back in this country and have them, you know, flying overhead regularly. Do you think our reaction in Britain would be the same? Do you think we would enjoy them being close? Do you think people would have that connection to them? I think it, I mean, it it could go both ways, I think. Um, And obviously we see that sort of polarisation here in the UK quite a lot with, you know, conflict (laughs) with nature or sheer love of nature. Um, But I mean, the, the reactions we've had from the vast majority of the public so far for the storks has been unbelievable, basically. They've just absolutely loved the storks. Amazing. I mean, when lockdown lifted in, well, first lockdown, which lockdown? Um, <laughs> yeah, which one you want to It's like the new way of keeping time, isn't it? Which lockdown was it? Um, the first lockdown, when the first lockdown lifted and... We had the first stork chicks in the wild in, in the UK for over 600 years at NEP. Basically, the world descended on NEP. We had over 30,000 people visit within about two months. Wow. It was unbelievable. We had crowds of people watching this stork nest with the first chicks in. We had people that were coming from probably too far, bearing in mind that we were in a pandemic. <laughs> but, you know, people coming to see them. To but they came. See, yeah, they came. It's fine. It's outdoors. Um <laughs> they came specifically to to see the storks and we had people that were visiting every day when they got to the point where they were due to fledge. And I've got this amazing video captured by one of my volunteers of the day the first chick did a, a flight around the field. Amazing. And this cheer just went up around the whole field of people just so excited that they'd seen oh, the so first awesome. stork fledge. And I was during lockdown, we had birds that were flying around the country, obviously not heeding any of the, <laughs> the pandemic warnings. But um, like, and I had people emailing saying, I saw one of your stalks today. It's the best thing that's happened all week. And, you know, people just absolutely seem to love them. Whether people will love it quite so much when the stalk starts to nest on their roof, I don't know. Um, I, I have people requesting information about how to put platforms up. So some people want it, but there's always going to be some that, that don't want a stalk nesting on, on your roof. I mean, the nests can be two metres tall by a metre wide in a few few years because they're used wow, every yeah, year and yeah. they build on them every year. They can weigh up to a tonne. And, you know, oh storks are noisy. They build clatter. They make lots of noise. They like, they make lots of mess. So there probably will be conflict a- along the way. But I, the, yeah. I think so far, the vast majority of people are really supportive and, and just can't wait to see them flying around the countryside. Obviously, I, I don't want... No one wants wildlife conflict. This is really not what I'm saying when I say this next sentence. <laughs> <laughs> but I think people in England especially could do with some wildlife conflict yeah to just kind of check yourselves because we've got such harsh 
opinions about world yeah. for really no reason no no exactly. at all I so mean, i think yeah. put a few stalks on people's roofs and be like right now you can live some wildlife experience <laughs> yeah exactly kind of sort of a little bit more conflict than the starling who's in your loft or something exactly. like that so, exactly so yeah i think i'd be quite happy to have a stalk on my roof but then i like stalks so <laughs> and i have i'm not gonna say it's a biased opinion but... boxes so like, it's just, what's another plan <laughs> What's a platform? It's just add another add another species to my garden list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I see what you're doing here now. You're just trying to add one to the big garden yeah, bird watch. Yeah, I can see what's happening yeah. here, Lucy. I mean, it's very transparent. Who else has got a stalk on their big garden bird watch? <laughs> oh, there's going to be a few fighting for it. Don't you worry yeah. about it. Yeah, I've got a friend who lives at NEP and he does it from his garden and he can see a stork nest from his garden and I was like see. you can't put that on your list no 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 that doesn't count <laughs> it's not in your garden if it lands in your garden then you can do it <laughs> see a tricky one with us my the, the listeners will know my girlfriend lives on a narrow boat Ooh. and we have to move it every two weeks so every time we do the big garden <laughs> purple, a spot. it depends where we're moored up <laughs> sometimes we have kingfishers <laughs> Sometimes we have nothing but a pigeon. It really does vary with what we see from the kitchen window (laughs) at the time. Um, But it does make it always exciting every year. Um, What I like about the the White Stock Project as well is is something you've said a couple of times here is where the individuals have come from, where the project has kind of like leapt forward, especially with the UK. Um, And it's from a captive situation because we quite often see people talking down animal captivity. And obviously this is a very nuanced topic and mm-hmm. we're not going to get into it now because, you know, the basics are some are great, some are not. But what is interesting here is that conservation success, what's happening here across Europe as well, has come from captive stock. Yeah. Um, that's kind of a good thing with this project, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, we couldn't do it without the work of Warsaw Zoo and of Cotswold Wildlife Park. We just wouldn't have the birds to do it. Warsaw Zoo, the majority of their birds are wild birds that have been taken in. But obviously, the the birds that we're getting from Cotswolds are captive bred birds. Yeah. But, you know, here in the UK, that's our source of, of birds. I mean, get, importing birds is really difficult, especially now. Yeah. I mean, you've got bird flu, you've got Brexit, you've got pandemic, you've got everything adding on to that. So, it, you know, it's, it's pretty difficult at the moment. But a lot of these reintroductions cannot function without the work of zoo collections and the captive breeding yeah. side of things. And I think it's got its place. If it's done right, it definitely has to be done right. And the welfare standards yeah. have to be really high. But if it's done right, it, it works. And, and you know, it's the same with a lot of other projects that I work with. And obviously Durrell, yeah. um, we do an awful lot. The whole idea of Durrell is saving species from extinction. And, you know, I work with people who saved the Mauritius kestrel from four individuals to now 200 odd individuals. Wow. Um, and that only worked because of captive breeding. So it's definitely got its place. We would have lost a lot more species if it wasn't for, for the work that these collections do. It's about what your end goal is, really, isn't it? Uh-huh. It's you, you can't it, with projects like this. Is what is your end goal? Yeah. Our end goal end goal is to bring white stalks back to the UK, maybe in certain areas. But and how is best to do that? Yeah. And it's it you can't get too tight. I mean, like you said, it's got to be done right. It's got to have the welfare standards. Yeah. It's got to have all that. But your end goal is to get white stalks back. If that's what we want, we need white stalks to do that. Exactly. And I think the other thing with these projects is you have to have an adaptive plan. So basically our plan is we had those initial birds from Poland to set up these three release sites in the southeast. We've done it in the southeast because it's near to the the shortest crossing across the English Channel to France, where 
you've got other populations of storks who are moving around quite a lot. And basically, the goal for the juvenile releases is to do five years of these juvenile releases and then reassess the situation. So they don't breed right. until they're four or five years old. So we've already got our uh, resident populations starting to breed. So they were, you know, they were three or four years old in 2019. So they're all getting to the right age now, which is why each year we're seeing more pairs breeding, which is what we expect. Yep. The end of five-year juvenile releases will reassess the situation. Do we need to do any more? Do we need to start releasing in other areas? Or are we just going to keep going as we're going? Or are we going to stop doing the releases? By that point, we should have some of those first juvenile-released individuals coming back to the UK. They should be starting to migrate back and breeding themselves. So it's all about monitoring it. And basically, we want 50 pairs of breeding white stalks by 2030. So that is kind of our end goal. That's what we're looking for. And we'll do that by doing these phased releases. So yeah, it's, it's about having a really clear plan about what you want to do going forwards and not just sticking to chucking animals out because it's the easy option. It's about, yeah. you know, making sure that you're doing it right. And once it's stable, you back off and you monitor. And then if it needs reinforcing in a couple of years time, then you reevaluate. But um, the idea is, is that it's a self-sustaining population and we spoke about some of the well not the issues some of the barriers and the challenges whether that be from people and the conflict potential or whether we're talking about things like brexit which might slow things down or you've got bird flu as well which you know is, a, is i don't want to say a constant worry but at times it does have its peaks and its troughs yeah. and it is something that is constantly monitored but on top of that like me and you spoke before we pressed record we had storms yeah. very kind i mean in Oh God, I'm going to sound so old now. In my life, <laughs> I don't recall having 70, 80 mile an hour winds in London, especially. So it is yeah. something that's quite new to a lot of us, especially in our professional careers in what we do. So how was that in your sites with the project? Was everything okay, question mark? Oh, yeah, so I mean, it, it was quite stressful um, of a weekend. And obviously we had yeah. Yeah, we had the, the 70, 80, well, we had nearly 90 mile an hour gusts here in Sussex um we had a lot of trees come down we had massive power cuts and all that kind of stuff but obviously at the moment with our flightless birds in the enclosures they're all undercover because of bird flu regulations so we had netting and all of that kind of stuff to be thinking about as well so yeah but un unfortunately one of our nests from last year one of the successful nests from last year was lifted clear out of one of the trees oh, um, no. This pair have already been back to the nest. They've already been seen mating the day before the storms. One of them was seen sitting down, which is super early. They wouldn't have had eggs yet, but they were obviously getting quite close. So in a way, I'm almost glad that the nest has been not destroyed because they're, they're back <laughs> yeah. building it. Let me say that first. They're back in their building again. It's really early in the season. But if they'd have had eggs this early in the season, you know, in a, another couple of weeks, we could be having more storms. And uh, to lose a nest with eggs in um, is is even worse. We, we had it last yeah. year and um, just as a few nests, eggs were due to hatch. We had high winds and hail storms. We lost one nest completely. The, the nest is still there, but the eggs failed. And we lost a couple of really young chicks because of the, the poor weather conditions so mm. this early on in the season it's far too early for them to be breeding but because of the very mild weather that we've had 
you know, I've seen it with the blue tits and stuff in the garden. They're already starting, you know, a month earlier than normal. But yeah, the storks are really resilient and they are already back and building their nests. So um, I give it another week and a half and it will be a full nest again and they'll be back to it. That's good to hear. (laughs) They are resilient animals, clearly. And like if their nest suddenly gets destroyed in something like in a storm or something like that, would they rebuild in the same spot or are they happy just to be in that same kind of area they'll just build another nest does it have to be in a direct spot again so this pair are building it in exactly the same spot um Mm. it depends on the individuals and it depends on the reasons why the nest has failed so if they get to sort of eggs and they don't hatch or chicks and they get predated then they will move completely um, and find somewhere new but it takes a lot of energy to be building a brand new nest which is one of the reasons why we think storks always use the same nests because they can start breeding earlier and it gives them more time um, for food and for bringing those chicks up and for the chicks to get strong before they've got to migrate whereas birds returning later from migration or having to start from scratch obviously have that delay in getting started but yeah if it's just something like this then yeah this pair will just build straight in the same spot and just hope for the best i think (laughs) yeah (laughs) like fingers crossed not another strong weekend of wind yeah if it gets destroyed again then yeah they'll move they'll decide to go somewhere somewhere else but normally they've chosen their spot because it's really good for food availability for when they've got chicks they normally feed within sort of a five kilometer radius of of the nest site and most of them will be near other storks as well so all of our stork nests are fairly close to each other apart from one they've decided that they're just going to do it in a completely different part <laughs> there's always of the an estate. introvert somewhere we're going elsewhere the only pair so far that have nested on a building as well so they're on the on the chimney stack at, at, on the castle at nap and yeah they've just decided oh, to go right. do their own thing oh they're the posh ones yeah yeah they're the, they're the snobby yeah, storks. Yeah. yeah, they're the ones on top of the chimney. They've got like central heating. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they've got central heating. They've probably got their own butler in the house. Yeah. They've probably got it all sorted. Yeah, it's all sorted. It's all, all <laughs> high end. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very, very yeah. upper class. Yeah. The class system in England doesn't matter what species you are, it filters down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and the White Stork Project. So obviously, you've spoken, you've given us like snippets of what mm. you guys do there. But if I was to simply ask the question, what does the White Stalk Project do? Mm-hmm. How would you answer that for us? So the White Stalk Project started in 2016. We are a partnership of private landowners and nature conservation organisations who are working together to restore a self-sustaining breeding population of white storks to the southeast of England by 2030. That's it in a nutshell, basically. Nice. You can say you tell I've said said that before, can't you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You've got your ethos yeah. and I like it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so with that, how do you decide the sites that you're going to use? Do you kind of collab together and look for optimal habitat or is it landowners that say I want this to happen on my site? How how do you go around getting this started? So I mean the the stalk project itself basically started it it's kind of the brainchild of Charlie Burrell from from the Nepa State who who owns the Nepa State. Um him and and uh, Reggie Hayworth from Cotswold Wildlife Park, who have had storks for a number of years, even before the project. They kind of got together and they were talking about reintroducing a species that could be used to engage people with nature so using yeah. a, a sort of very charismatic species and obviously all the same ones come up you know the beavers and lynx and wolves and all those yeah. kind of things but 
white storks also came in and because of their connection with living alongside people and the fact that there wasn't any licensing needed and yeah it was going to be I say easy, relatively easy yeah, yeah. To, to do it. That's what they decided to do. So Charlie then spoke to people that he knows. And that's why our sites are based at private landowners, basically. So they kind of approached Charlie as well and said, look, we'd love to have them. We were looking at this core area down in the southeast because of its proximity to, to the rest of Europe across the channel. So yeah, that's kind of why we've got these sites down here. We've Taking a decision as a partnership at the moment not to expand away from those sites, we get loads of people contacting us, other yeah, landowners and other organisations who are like, we want storks. <laughs> um, because from the outside of the project, it looks really easy. We started in 2016, but we didn't, you know, my role as the project officer started in 2019. We had our first nest in 2019. That's when we started publicising everything. So from the outset, it looks really simple to do. But actually, <laughs> there was a lot of work that went yeah. in be- before everybody started seeing storks flying around. So, you know, a lot of people are like, well, we can just get some storks. We'll just chuck some storks out. And it, it just, it, like I said, with the different phases, it just doesn't work like that so what we want really is we want all of our sites down here in in the southeast breeding well we want the birds you know migrating from these sites and we want them returning and breeding to these sites which this year fingers crossed will be the first year that we have some of our 2019 birds coming back amazing um so yeah keep your eyes open on our social media for yeah um, definitely the first ones to come back i will be <laughs> i have got a bottle of champagne in the fridge waiting <laughs> some lauren <laughs> perrier champagne <laughs> You're a big celebration um but yeah so we we're concentrating down here you know it's only me that's running the project wow. at the moment. You know, from I do the public engagement, I do the post-release monitoring, I coordinate the sites, I coordinate the partners. It's a big job, as well as working on two other Durrell projects. So our resources are, are finite and we really want these three core sites to be working really well before we then start looking elsewhere. But at that point, we will then be looking at where's the next lot of suitable habitat where can we next bolster the population and where might the storks move out naturally and start looking at at those but it will be a few years yet before we start looking at that for any landowners listening don't email lucy yeah you'll just get asking my waiting list (laughs) just just give it five years let the project don't run before you can walk yeah exactly so what's next i I feel bad asking you this question now (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but what's next for the white stork project you know let's let's talk about the next five years obviously you said what your game plan is by 2030 but what's coming up what are you guys getting ready for so basically kind of next steps for us like i say we're monitoring the storks a lot so we've got a proportion of the storks which are wearing gps tags um so i like i say i do all of the post-release monitoring so I've got my eyes on some of those 2019 birds for them to start coming back and my lovely very large team of hugely dedicated and stalk crazy volunteers (laughs) on site uh, at our three release sites keeping their eyes open for any individuals that might be making their way back and monitoring nests uh, at the release sites. Future things coming up, potential for the GPS tracking data to go live on the website, possible live streaming nest camera. Um, yeah! <laughs> <laughs> which would be super exciting. That would be um, amazing. But uh, yeah, perhaps a little way off, we'll see. And 
yeah, basically keeping an eye on these releases. So we've got two more years of juvenile releases to do at NEP, and then we'll be monitoring how many juveniles are coming back and then whether we move those releases to one of our other release sites to help sort of bolster the other populations as well. So that's kind of it, really, for the next five years. Keeping an eye on it, really. Monitoring the stalks coming back. The thing with stalks, wild or released, is they don't have a particularly good survival rate in their first year. So mortality rates are really high because they're a migratory species. Yeah, of course, there's a lot of risk. Yeah, a lot of them die on migration going south. If they get buffered off because of bad winds, they don't really know how to get back to the right area to, right. To, to feed and to find the good sort of overwintering grounds they do get shot on migration occasionally less so on the western route than they do on the eastern route but power lines are one of the biggest threats to them and we've seen it with our own stalks as well gps tags allow us to look at mortality rates and a high proportion of deaths that we've had have been because of power lines so yeah they've got a few risks along the way so it's like a 70 percent mortality rate for for white stalks wow that is high yeah so the number of juveniles we'll have coming back is likely to be low to start off with and that that's yeah. completely natural for for the species so yeah we may need to continue doing releases for slightly longer than for slightly than longer planned. than planned yeah okay well that's, that's exciting exciting stuff though and i'm looking yeah. forward to i am going to be on your social media now like ready especially in the next few weeks yeah definitely um, keep an eye out for the next few weeks there might be some exciting stuff coming up <laughs> amazing um and my last question to you lucy is if you could pass on one bit of advice on to everyone regarding the natural world what would you pass on just get out there and enjoy it basically and yeah. be curious just take take notice of things and you know just get out there enjoy it spend some quiet time out there put your phone down I'm the worst for it. I know I am. I go around trying to take photos and post on social media and do all that kind of stuff. And I've now gone completely the opposite way where I just, I don't post anything on social media because I do it for work (laughs) for a start, but also because I just want to be enjoying it. So I think, yeah, and just finding somewhere quiet to sit down and let it come to you, basically, rather than rushing around trying to find stuff because you're. I don't think you're. You don't see as much when you're trying you to don't. see it. If that makes it's sense, it's so true. It's so true. Like if you're looking at it through a lens, you don't see it properly. Like find it, enjoy it, and then if you see, if you have the opportunity, that's your secondary thing. Hundred percent. Couldn't agree with you more, Lucy. Thank you so much for being on this episode of Into the Wild. I'm pumped for white stalks now. I can't <laughs> wait to go to net and see some. I've been waiting to go for a couple of years now. So hopefully this is the year that I do. Um, thanks so much for coming on and all the best with the coming weeks thank you thanks so much for having me it's been a blast thanks again for listening everyone if you'd like to keep up to date with lucy and the white stalk project you can do so on social media of course their tags are in the write-up of this episode also you can follow us on social media at into the wild pod on twitter and into the wild podcast on instagram and if you'd like to get in touch about Into the Wild or ask any questions or suggest any ideas for some episodes, you can email me at intothewildpod at gmail.com. A quick note to say that all the opinions and expressions expressed in today's episode belong to the person that said them and do not represent those opinions held by Into the Wild or anyone that we work with or are affiliated with. If you would like a shout out on the show or to be put into a draw to win a free Into the Wild podcast mug, yes please, then all you have to do is review the show on iTunes or Spotify or both and send me a screen grab, take part in our weekly nature highlight share every Sunday on Instagram, or you can tip Into the Wild via our Ko-fi link in the write-up of this episode. 
Of course, you can do all three of those things and increase your chance of winning the monthly mug. Until next time, keep well, stay safe and live the good life.